Welcome into the School of Science Radio podcast. I am Gino Ganello, uh, and alongside me, I'm being joined by Adam and Chris from Royal Blue Mersey's uh, SB Nation page. Once again, guys, a good weekend for us this weekend, uh, this past weekend, as we uh, battered, I guess you could say, um, that you know, Brighton defense. Uh, and it looked pretty good. Things looked well, and, and I think uh, I think we're all pretty happy with this past weekend's performance. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty weird to come away from something feeling almost unequivocally good. Uh, you know, it could probably whine a little bit about set piece defending, but that was pretty much the only thing that you had to whine about from start to finish. And not only do you come out of it feeling good afterwards, I would never really felt uncomfortable during it either. Like it never felt like we were not going to win that game and not going to win it handily. Mm, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, Brighton had one chance. They scored it, but like they were creating nothing. You you cannot tell me that there wasn't at least a minute or two after Brighton leveled that you didn't think, oh, boy, Everton is really going to Everton this up right now. Maybe I, a little bit. I don't believe you if you say you didn't feel that. Uh, maybe a little bit, but, you know, as we've talked about before, Silva doesn't seem to approach those those draws like the 1-1 or the 0-0 scoreline where, where he's just going to sit back and, and just see what happens. I knew that they would go after it again, and uh, sure enough. Yeah. Overall, I mean, like you guys said, I, it, it was 1-1, but Brighton didn't have too many chances, despite the fact that they did tie it up um, moments after we had we had scored. Um, but the team looked great. The, the creativity was there. I think a lot of us, uh, we talked about this on the podcast last week, where we were unsure if we were going to be able to create, be able to be creative enough to break down that tight Brighton defense uh, that has been so good for them this year. Um, and, and one reason to that, a man that me, that deserves all the accolades this weekend, a man whose price tag seems like nothing after the performance and the goal he put together, uh, one of the two goals he put together against Brighton, Richarlison. He was unbelievable, uh, you know, absolutely destroyed Matt Ryan and Shane Duffy on that final, uh, on that final goal there. It was pretty. Does this performance do anything to calm our fears about his ability to play striker? Do we see him fitting in a certain situation as striker? Uh, what did this performance really do uh, for our thoughts on him at that position? And Adam, we'll start with you. Um, I, hmm. The thing is about his, his performance and those two goals, uh, which he took remarkably well, and all, all credit to him, uh, the both goals really kind of highlight what he is good at. Uh, he's good in space. He's good one v one, and he's very comfortable once he gets in on goal, uh, taking his chances. Uh, my only hesitation in you know kind of christening him the striker, or at least someone that we can say comfortably, this is one of our strikers, um, is that we've still not quite seen him be able to get involved in chances, either getting on the end of them or creating them in the run of play with him as a striker. Uh, we saw what his individual abilities are 
uh, again, you know, and that's many times that we've seen it so far this season. And, and he was good value for both of those goals, but I'm not 100% convinced that we, that this particular performance puts to bed the, can he play as a striker debate? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to offer my, my thoughts and prayers to Shane Duffy on that second goal. I think he, uh, he still doesn't know what day it is after that touch that Richarlison took around him. Um, but now, like at, like Adam mentioned, though, I think we kind of can. This the match against Brighton was at least an illustration of why Marco Silva probably wants to play Richarlison there. He's because he's so confident once he gets into a scoring opportunity, um, which now that I think about it, is kind of the inverse of Theo Walcott. But uh, that's another conversation. Uh, I'm sure we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. But, the the problem just is that he he can get into those opportunities in similar ways from the left wing and his hold up play and distribution ability is still kind of lags behind and you look at somebody like uh, Chink Tosin who can bring him into the play from from his striking position a little bit better and i don't know it seems like Silva's got his his favorite 11 at this point perhaps but I would still rather see a real striker up there. I'm just not sure that that's going to happen that often moving forward. Yeah, yeah and, and go ahead, Adam. Uh, I think, and I think, you know, that, that the Chelsea match will kind of be an interesting uh, litmus test for that, you know, going away to Chelsea, who's in good form. And, you know, we'll we'll talk more about Chelsea later, obviously. Um, but you would suspect if there are going to be matches in which – Silva does not prefer Richarlison at the striker and prefers one of Dom or Schenk up top. That's the sort of match it would be in. So it'll be real interesting to see what the decision is in that kind of game where you know you might need somebody who's going to be able to hold hold the ball up and relieve some pressure while you get numbers up the field. Yeah, and we saw that, I think, that kind of idea against Arsenal, right, where Dom started up top because he's – we're not going to have the ball against Chelsea really at all, especially now that they have uh, Jorginho and putting somebody a little bit better with his back to goal and better making those runs up top would be, would be more interesting to me. But um, I, I do think that Richarlison is probably passable at striker, particularly against these bad teams. I'm, I don't say that, you know, we play Cardiff in a couple weeks, I believe I would, pretty pretty much assume that he gets the start up top there because they're just really bad and it's one of those things where like against Brighton you can bludgeon them into submission I don't know it's there are very few things to complain about right now truth Mm -hmm. be told yeah Yeah, and I I think that um I think that it's important to kind of point out here and you know at the risk of being too negative that Richarlison playing as a striker this week was not a detriment to the attack in the way that I think it had been in previous weeks, um, which I guess you say is a step forward, and that even if the offense is still kind of, you know, neutral, uh, not better or worse than it would be without him, uh, and you're going to be able to get those moments of explosiveness like we saw in the two goals that he takes, uh, then that's, that's still, you know, quite good. Um, and, I, yeah. and a and reason honestly, that you might want to still see him there. And I honestly think that one of the reasons he wasn't a detriment um, in the attack on Saturday was that 
we basically played with what a fifth attacker because Seamus Coleman played his damn socks off. Yeah. And most of the play, we we act, it actually was worked out wide and to great effect. Which you know, part of that's due to Brighton's fullbacks being not much better than Gino and I out there, but still, Richardson <laughs> wasn't. Richarlison wasn't having to to do things that don't suit his game in this match. Yeah, and I, I think that the other thing in terms of the attack um, that we do have to point out, and you've you've said it, you know, re- regarding Coleman, who is was excellent today, uh, is that Everton for most of the season has looked to create the majority of its chances, at least starting out in the wide areas. Um, and the, the troubles that we've had has been that sometimes we, once we get into, uh, into the final third, we don't know what to do with it once we, we have that ball in, in the wide area. And Coleman in particular, but all of the, the wingers and the fullbacks, uh, against Brighton did a really good job of both interplaying with each other when they got that ball out wide and when they looked to put the ball into the box to really try to find a target, uh, the pullback, to somebody waiting it toward the top of the box was really, really effective, I thought. And it's just, it's such a minute difference. Uh, and it, it feels almost academic to, to make the, make the distinction, but they were so, so much better at taking the extra second to find their target in the box when trying to go from outside to inside, uh, as opposed to just kind of, hoofing it towards the center and hoping for the best, which was something we had seen a fair bit of. And when you've got Richarlison at striker, as opposed to Schenk, as opposed to Dom, that's just not an effective attacking method. So if we can continue to see those wide players really find targets as opposed to just whip in crosses to whip in crosses, uh, then we're going to continue to see more like the attack that we saw against Brighton. Yeah, and regarding that pullback play that you mentioned, um it worked out pretty well for Gilfie Sigurdsson multiple times that he didn't end up being able to finish any of them, but it was there pretty much the entire match. I don't know if it was something defensively that Brighton were doing um, or what, but speaking of Gilfie too, is another difference in this game besides the better wide play was that Richarlison and Sigurdsson stopped getting in each other's way for the most part, yeah. um, which made a big difference. The space was there, and um, as you saw, Richarlison took advantage of the space uh, several times. Yeah, and I think that all that we just mentioned right there is a product of the team playing with chemistry. You know, uh, they built that chemistry and, you know, I mean, obviously when you first play with each other, things are going to happen where you don't know where the players are going to be. You're going to whip in crosses because you think somebody's supposed to be there, but that's not how they play. Um, You know, Gilfie and and Richarlison getting in the way of each other. When you play with each other, you get in that groove and you have a chemistry like we have being that we've played the same, uh, the same starting 11 for a significant amount of games. Now um, that stuff starts to fall into place. And with Richarlison, I mean, he, he, like you guys have mentioned, you know, his best spot is running at people. And even on that, that third goal, I believe it was on the left-hand side, which is his natural uh, side to be uh, attacking from, but he has been fantastic. And hopefully uh, this was a sign of good things to come uh, with all of that uh, moving forward here. Uh, as we take on Chelsea and then move into the latter part of our 2018 schedule. But a player that has recently come into the squad and uh, and has, has proved himself to be very, uh, very talented and, and important to this squad. And, and I'm going to read this directly from this question directly from the the 
outline here as there is a a joke that I did not write in here. Oh God, um, don't give Chris the but, satisfaction. But is Andre Gomesh, much like Iverson, Allen Iverson that is, the answer? That joke is from our very own Chris. Um and you're, how, for all how four you, of our listeners who have crossover interest between Everton and the NBA. <laughs> all of them. Um and then how has he changed the way Everton have played to uh, from Schneiderlin uh, or from how things were when Schneiderlin or Davies was in there? And to be on a much more serious note here, guys, Andre Gomich has been very good and, and really added something. Chris, we'll start with you, being that you wrote this joke, this beautiful joke that we have now, uh, and, and, and uh, see what your opinion is has, and has been on Gomish and how he's changed things for Everton. Yeah, so our, uh, and thank you for the uh, the muted applause for the the content writing there. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, the the thing with Gomez is that a he's surpassed already my expectations for him, which were admittedly limited, but um, I've been very impressed. And I think what the main thing that he brings to this side that is that is kind of important is that he melds the styles of play between Tom Davis and Morgan Schneiderlin kind of perfectly. Quite as good of a passer as Schneiderlin, but he's much better than Davis. And he's not quite as quick um, or fast as Davis, but he's much faster than Schneiderlin. And so what they get to you is a nice little hybrid of ability to pair with Gay, where, you know, Ghana's wrecking stuff and Gomez can kind of take over the – he can win the ball himself if he needs to, which we saw him do on Coleman's goal on Saturday. But he he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, I think, and that seems to work really well next to Ghana. Well, and I think that the Schneiderlin comparison in particular um, is an interesting one. And I think I would say that he is um, – Schneiderlin is a better ball recycler. He's better at keeping possession. But I would also say that Andre is better at moving the ball forward than Schneiderlin is. And, and the thing that Everton needed more than the – possession recycler the guy's going to help them keep the ball is the guy who's going to be progressing the ball um and I feel like week by week we've seen him do a little bit more of that work um his pass map from this this match again was improved in that regard compared to last week's much as last week's was better than the one before that um so I'm really, really happy with with what he's been able to bring. As you've said, um, it's definitely was a position of need, somebody who could be a ball progressor, but also still uh, be able to win the ball as well. And I'm not sure that there's a whole lot more that we could have asked from him at this point. Yeah, I I agree. I think Andre uh, Gomes has been really, really good for us. And really, like Chris said, connecting – the strengths of both Schneiderlin and Davies and being able to help this team out um, in, in more ways than one. He's really added something to the team, and it's been uh, a, a nice, refreshing sight for us. Some Someone like I think both all of us, uh, you know, like we've mentioned, didn't have very high expectations for, didn't really know what to expect, um, but has been very good. And, and moving on now to another player, and I think this player probably heard what we were saying about him on a couple of the podcasts. and. <laughs> decided to get angry about it, which was, hey, if we got to do that, we'll keep talking bad about him. Hi, um, Mason Holgate. Have you been listening to the podcast? Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was out of line. <laughs> the poor guy doesn't even play, and you got you to mention his name. Yeah, I um, do. <laughs> but Seamus Coleman, 
so good from him. Classic performance from him. He was terrific. We like we've already mentioned on this podcast. Is this are we starting to see him get back into form here? And is this a performance he can give us week in and week out? Uh, is this a little bit of redemption from him? Adam, we'll start with you. Well, you know, I think that he had been pretty regularly um, this season getting forward into the attack in ways that we are accustomed to. The issue was that his final ball almost exclusively uh, was dreadful. Uh, and the absolute opposite uh, was was true on Saturday. Um when he he completed crosses, he picked out guys on the pullback. You know, Gilfie probably at some point should have scored uh, a goal that that got Coleman an assist on a pullback. Uh, and just that that extra added bit of quality is so important for this team if they're going to continue to build in the wide areas. We know Lucas Dinia, uh has the technical ability to make the key pass to find the the right recipient on the end of the cross from the left. And we need Coleman to be doing that on the right. And on Saturday, he absolutely did that. And it, so, isn't it, uh, it, it um, excuse me, Gino, I'm sorry. No, yeah, go ahead. I, I also just don't want to go without mentioning uh, Coleman's goal on Saturday, which was just, he's pulled a few of those finishes out before where you're like, are we sure that's a fullback? Because, you know, it yeah. didn't maybe look that impressive when you first saw it live, but he really just arrowed that thing into the bottom corner and left um, Matty Ryan with zero chance to get to it, which was really quite fun, particularly given his reaction. And you could tell that he was kind of aware of the narrative surrounding his play over the last couple of weeks. That being said, I do want to be a little bit of a wet blanket and just say that um, I think it was Jose Izquierdo on um, on Coleman's side for Brighton wasn't really making him work super hard defensively. And I think that may have contributed to how much he was able to offer in the attack. And um, you're probably not going to see the same thing on Sunday against uh, Aiden Hazard. <laughs> Surely. But, uh, but I, again, I think that the, the biggest uh, kind of change was not necessarily the volume of scenarios in which he was getting into attack, but the quality of his service uh, when he had the opportunity and, because we've seen the volume uh, of him getting involved pretty regularly this this season. It's been the final product. So it's good to see that come back into play, even if it was on a lot of opportunities. And then you just hope coming into a match like Chelsea, where you know he's not going to get a ton of opportunities, that he can find that quality in the one or two moments where you really need it from him. Yeah, and, and Chris, what I was uh, what I was going to say is actually – Right off of what you mentioned about Coleman's goal, isn't it just great watching an angry Seamus Coleman celebrate a goal? It is, uh, it is <laughs> yeah, a beautiful it is. sight. It's, yeah, it's, 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 they're always so emotion-filled. <laughs> yeah, I told Adam on Saturday that, you know, there have been more important goals that we've scored over the last couple of years, but I think very few of them have made me quite that happy just when I saw how worked up he was about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's absolutely. always. He, Always brings the emotion, uh, especially on those goals, and it's a great thing to see. And you just love to see something like that. Yeah, and who knows how much this really means inside the locker room and inside the ropes of, of the of the park and whatnot. But I'm also glad to see him finally becoming the regular captain, um, just because you know all due respect to Jagielka and stuff. But you kind of felt like Coleman was 
was the real heartbeat of the team for several years now. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you could see how much, like, like we've mentioned, the goal may not have been that important in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but even against a team like Brighton, who's a team we should beat, you can see how much these things mean to him. And, and that's kind of what you want from a captain of your team. Uh, but Marco Silva, well, move, moving on to Marco Silva and his comments, he said this was Everton's best performance of the season. And Chris, we'll start off with you on this one. Do you agree or disagree with this? Set-piece defending aside, I think I agree because, like I mentioned at the top, I was never really worried about this, which is kind of a strange change of pace as an Everton fan. Um, they were just in complete control pretty much from start to finish and and didn't let up either. Like When, when they were ready to generate a scoring chance, they just did it. They were dictating to play to Brighton. And I know that Brighton's not very good and, and all these kinds of things, but it's it's a different thing for Everton to see us beating teams with authority that we have no business not beating. And I think that's that's almost been one of the main things from Silva's tenure so far that has changed for me is they're not messing around with the with the Fulhams and the you know the Southamptons and the teams like that of the world where we have more talent than they do, um, and we're gonna we're gonna tell them how this game's gonna go. Yeah, and, and I think that the maybe the the biggest takeaway here is that every we've seen Everton have facets of its game working at, at various times this season, um, and I think that this was again set piece defending aside, which we've seen them largely do better at for the last month or so, and, and then a relapse here. But set piece defending aside, you have to say that every little part of the game came together. You know, we saw better progression of the ball through the midfield, you know, because Andre Gomes had had a good game. Uh, we saw still consistent progression of the ball down the wings. And then we saw actually creating chances and, and finding Sigurdsson in the important areas and getting a chance from the high press, getting a chance off the counter. And we converted both of them. Uh, the center backs were largely, again, very much in control as Brighton attacks came in and Brighton didn't really generate anything. Outside of, uh, outside of that goal, I, I looked earlier and I think that they may have had like 0.1 XG outside of the, the goal that they scored on the, the set piece. So uh, you can't ask for a whole lot more than that. Uh, except, you know, Hey, I know you're doing zonal marking, but if the guy plays a short corner, you still have to mark someone, but that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, uh, just just to further your point, Brenton had five shots total, only four shots outside of the goal, and two of them were from way outside the box. Defensively, I think we you know we enjoyed all three of the goals so much, but it, the defenses do some credit here as well because um, Kurt Zuma and Michael Keane were not bothered pretty much ever. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was a it was a great performance from. Everton this week and hopefully this is the type of performance we see week in and week out against teams that are just by far inferior uh, to the talent level that we should be putting out and can put out week in and week out but guys real quick before we move into the next segment uh, and talk a little bit about some personnel uh, things moving forward what were your main takeaways from this match um you know I, th- I think that the the big one 
is one that that we've already kind of hit on, which is we have seen now, you know, what this group of players is capable of when everything is clicking. Um, And that's really encouraging because I don't know if you could say that up to uh, up to this point this season that we really felt like we were starting to to encroach upon that what the the ceiling was for uh for this team and I, and I think we started to see that now and it's high and it's exciting um so the question then obviously becomes how do you maintain that but the fact that we've put together something that resembles that is a huge step forward yeah, I agree with that, and my main takeaways are a couple of things that I already briefly touched on, and those are that, I, A, I think um, Silva has really settled on his favorite set of 11 players, at least against the the 13 team other teams in the league who we have decidedly more talent than. And um, I also think that it's, again, extremely pleasant, and it makes me feel good things inside that they come up against the team worse than they are, and it doesn't feel like an even match. I mean, we may still screw it up, but you you can, you know, with within five or ten minutes of watching a, a game against a Brighton or a Fulham or whoever, you uh, it's very evident who the better team is, which did not yeah. used to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. And like you guys, like you just mentioned there, Chris, you know, it's nice seeing that against these teams that, that were better than. And, and, you know, it's it's been – the, the the personnel issues that we have are such good issues to have, being that Gary Mina can't get a spot in this team. Uh, we have Lookman on the bench who's provided some some great uh, some great appearances for us. We Tosun and Dom, who admittedly have had their chances, but still good players that aren't getting on the field uh, because we have players that are better than them on the uh, uh, on the pitch already it is something that is just a, a really nice thing to see. Uh, moving forward, and it, it's something that's really been part of this whole change of Everton. And, yeah, and, and not to not to drag this portion on too long, but I do think that it bears mentioning just how deep this team is at this point, right? Because you mm-hmm. look at the 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 bench is just there's nobody on the bench, um, at least the bench that's been the last three or four games that I'm uncomfortable with coming into the game, which is a, which is a big change. Um, from previous years and you look up and down the lineup and there's some ready-made replacement for anybody in the starting 11 who are pretty capable in their own right I think really the only spot that I could think of that there's not a decent replacement for is Gilfie Sigurdsson but um, Gilfie is a machine and just can play 90 minutes three times a week without even catching his breath so that appears to not be a very big deal I'm knocking on a lot of wood yeah, and I mean, you also have to be realistic in that, you know, the, the the number of number 10s with his creative ability and work rate uh in the world, it you can you, you can maybe count it on two hands, but you certainly don't need more than that. Um so while you'd love to have a ready-made replacement for a guy like that, you also need to be realistic and say, "Hey, you know, this is this guy's a a, if he's not an elite talent, he's bordering on it, and you you can't really replace that if yeah, you're a team like Everton. You're not going to have somebody on your bench that can replace it's somebody not, that good. It's not Kirandell's fault that he's uh, nowhere near as good as Gilfie. Like that's yeah. not, <laughs> not Kirandell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then 
just again, great problems to have there. But moving on to segment two, where we're actually going to get a couple of personnel uh, decisions here, some some things that have come up in the news. First, we're going to start talking about the attack. And, uh, you know, we talked about it last week. I had questions on whether he would play this week or start this week at least. Um, and the, the, the perceived Walcott issue, the, what is the best front three that we have? Um, you know, how this attack should be set up, what we think is the best situation for them and whatnot. And Adam, we'll start with you. Really just very basically, what is, who's the, who are the best front three that we have? Well, going into this week, I, I would have told you uh, probably Shank up top, Richarlison on the left, and Walcott on the right. And after this week, uh, I, I might completely 100% overhaul that. Uh, <laughs> and I might say Richarlison up top, Bernard on the left, and Adam Ola-Lookman on the right. Um, so let's... Let's let's start. I think with the the elephant in the room when we have this discussion, and that's got to be Theo Walcott. Yeah, uh, Walcott yeah. is he got off to a very good start to the season, and I mean we we know what Theo Walcott is capable of. We know who Theo Walcott is. Um, that said, he has looked uncomfortable, <laughs> we'll say, uh, in front of goal when chances have fallen to him. Historically, his his conversion rate is is pretty good um you know he's he's gonna more or less convert at about an average rate um but he missed i don't think it's fair to call it a sitter what he missed uh today at the start of the second half off that cross from bernard but um it was close and his he's missed a few chances uh of that ilk in the last couple of weeks and i just think that insofar as we're playing richarlison up top then you know you're going to need your your wingers to be an attacking threat in terms of goal scoring. And if he's not able to score goals, I'm not sure that he can be a guy that stays in the lineup uh, when we've got, you know, uh, Bernard and, and Lookman available. Yeah. What I will say about Theo that I think that the listener should maybe just consider is that he's not played as bad as his, misses would tell you he's played in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, completely. Uh, because it does take some skill to to get into those positions to miss sitters, right? Like, uh, Theo Walcott is is elite at m- moving off the ball and, you know, I, I've lost the citation at this point, but the other day I saw a, st- a stat that basically said Walcott is the best generator of shots from a wide position in the Premier League of the past 10 or 15 years, excepting Cristiano Ronaldo at Manchester United. Like, it's, it's, pretty good and, company, you might say. Well, it's pretty good company, and it, it kind of ties into your point. We know what Theo Walcott is. He's a, he's a goal-scoring winger. Like, that's – and, you know, if he's going to be off form, then that's a discussion we can have, and I think he certainly could have contributed more of the last couple of weeks, but I think that I also still include him in my my first three attackers on um, in my favorite starting lineup for that reason, is that we know what he is, and you don't always know, at least we haven't in the past, what Adam Ola-Lookman or what Bernard are. And I think that the other thing with Walcott that maybe uh, has misled folks, including myself, um, is that he put up two assists early in this season. And 
obviously that that feels good. We were we were glad that he did that, but I think that that may have uh, altered our expectations to something unfair about what he was going to bring uh, creatively um, in both in 2015, 16, and in 2016, 17. Uh, he played uh, 1,400 minutes in the for that first season and about 2,000 in the second. He had two assists in each of those seasons. Um, he's he's not a guy that's going to get a ton of assists, um, and I think that that kind of predictably when you look at it that way that his creative his creative numbers have kind of nosedived is something that we should have expected and we just need to be more realistic about what he brings from that perspective going forward and again another important thing to mention is that i would not expect if you're an everton fan that theo walcott is going to continue converting chances at such a poor rate yeah agreed i think that you can expect he's He's going to regress to his mean, as it were, in his goal scoring, which is going to improve, and his creative numbers, which is going to decrease. So yes, I, I think so. The the original question, which I still didn't really answer, and I don't think Chris did either, so that makes <laughs> me feel better. Uh, what is what is our best front three? Um, Long term, I think our best front three remains what it what I thought it was last week, which is Shank up top. Richarlison on the left and Walcott on the right. Right and now, based on go ahead. No, you you finish that thought. I was just gonna give mine. Uh, okay. Um right now, based on current form, um I would probably let's put next week aside because Chelsea's a different beast. Against an average opponent right now on current form, I'd probably go Richarlison up top, uh Bernard left and Lookman right. But that is purely an attempt to ride hot hands as far as we can. And I would not suspect that long-term that would be the best option. So I'm going to throw you a little curveball. I'm going to go with Charleston left, Calvert-Lewin in the middle, and oh. Walcott on the right. I actually, why, uh, why Dom? I'm curious. Not that I, I necessarily th- think that's a weird pick. I'm just curious what your rationale is. So I think that he um, – so you mentioned form. I think he's in better form than Tosun. And I think that for Silva's pressing style, he's the best presser out of the three center forwards available. If you, well, four, I suppose, but um, RIP Omar Nias. Um, Miss you, buddy. Miss you. Yeah. Love you, but you ain't very good. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically it. I think that uh, Dom's work rate is, um, and not that Chinks is bad. Dom's just a far more athletic. So his, He's just faster. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day. His, his F. Their effort level may be the same, but um, Dom's effort g- goes a little bit further because of his athleticism. Yeah, I, yeah. I've always, on the past couple podcasts, I've brought him up a couple times because I, I think with Dom, and he has, he's the one out of the three that hasn't really gotten a, a good chance to show um, exactly what he's got and, and how he can contribute to the team. He heads the ball very well which works if we are crossing the ball into the middle of the box. Um, and like you said, he, he does press very well as well. Um, but I, I think that uh, as both of you do, I have a similar um, three up there who, based on form right now. And then, of course, based on um, based on uh, on who really should be there. I think Lookman probably should get a game in there based on form, uh, the form of Theo Walcott. But, I think that Walcott on that right-hand side is definitely who should be um, 
who should who they should have up there, uh, and then Richarlison on the left and, and Dom on the up top, like uh, like you said there, Chris. Just I, I I like Dom. I think that he can provide us something that we haven't um, seen a lot of this season, finding the right spots on those crosses and just being in the right spot at the right time. Um, and and and, and I think he can show us what he's got and really show us how he's developed as a, as a striker in that position. But moving on uh, to some alleged interest that we, that the team has in, in some players around the league, obviously transfer rumors are year round, not only in the transfer window. And according to uh, some articles, Everton allegedly have interest in Aaron uh, Juan Bisaka. I don't know if I said that right. That's the crystal palace right back. Um, the deal would be a potential swap deal uh, or was reported as a potential swap deal with Lookman, um, a player we were just speaking about and who, who we feel very highly about. Adam, how do you feel about this uh, as a whole and just about the, as as well as the player, Aaron uh, Juan Bisaka uh, in himself? Um, well, I think, I think what we saw from, uh, from Juan Bisaka when we played Crystal Palace uh, was, you know, obviously very very good i was blown away uh i, I think we we talked about um about him uh when we did that the pod after that game where his his underlying numbers were really good and i was really excited to actually get to see him play for 90 minutes um and when i did i went oh yeah look he uh he looks like those numbers that that he's got he looks really good um i i, I don't know how much sense this move makes at this particular moment in time. Um, and I don't know how much uh, Adam, how happy Adam Lookman would be with a, a move to Crystal Palace after he thought that he was going to get his way and go to RB Leipzig earlier in the year. So I think that there's <laughs> multiple issues potentially with that, even before you get into does he, if you sign him, does he start? What happens with Coleman? So many moving parts on that that, that just make me uncomfortable. Yeah, so I have, I have a couple of, of quick fire points here that you can take or leave. The first one is that Seamus Coleman does not need to be replaced. The second one is that if you do replace Seamus Coleman, it's better to do it too early than too late. The third one is that Aaron Juan Basaka is really, really good. So I don't want this, uh, my hesitance over this potential deal to, to cloud the fact that this is a special young player. Like the, the, these opportunities don't come around that often. But Theo Walcott is not young and he's also very fragile. And I'm not extremely comfortable with parting after we work so hard to keep Adamola Lookman with just parting parting with him so quickly um, and and really giving up Walcott's, I don't want to say heir apparent because Theo hasn't been here that long, but you can see a world in which look, Lookman has a direct route into the first team in regular playing time. Juan Basaka would not, I think is my point. And I think that, I think the other thing that is just important to keep in mind with Juan Basaka is that we're talking about a guy who has played like, 20 games in the Premier League. He, he played a little bit for Palace at the end of last season, and he's obviously been a relatively regular starter for, for Palace uh, this season. But that's a relatively small 
body of work, and that's not a whole lot of game tape for opponents to have to be able to look and see, you know, how can we stop this kid going forward and how can we exploit him in our own attack? Not that I necessarily think that, you know, he'll turn into a paper tiger after the book on him gets out there, but I think it's important to think about that let's, you know, I I would feel a lot better about making that kind of move if we were talking about a guy who had, you know, two seasons of Premier League experience or or any kind of meaningful professional experience under his belt as opposed to two months worth. So maybe somebody like uh, Lucas Dinier? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Now, obviously, Lucas Dinier's don't, you know, grow on trees either. (laughs) Um, And the fact that that worked out for us as well as it has is, uh, well, yes, as a, as a, one could say uh, players who have played for Barcelona and PSG and also find a move to Everton as a good move for their career. Well, you could say <laughs> yeah. that maybe one of those have ever existed and he is currently Everton's starting left back. Uh, so not, not that, not that a player uh, like Juan Bissaka for me to be convinced would have to have Dinia's, uh pedigree and, and resume but I'd feel a little bit better if he'd played more than 15 games sure. for Crystal Palace. And I think just to, to put a fine point on it, like Juan Basaka clearly deserves to start in the Premier League somewhere. Um, I'm not questioning that. I think he's, I think he's great from everything I've seen. I've been very impressed. I don't think that um, he deserves to start at a place like Everton. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that he's Everton are too good for him. I just think that Seamus Coleman has several years left and, I don't want to get into a situation where I well I enjoy having a settled starting eleven. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I uh, and just one final point on this. Uh, wouldn't everyone love to see Adamola Lookman go to Crystal Palace so that Roy Hodgson could presumably start him at striker the same way he does with all of his wingers? I bet Ada Ada would just love that. Love it. Well, he could be the next Andros Townsend. I would be the, even worse than that if Adam Lookman went to Palace and sat on the bench while Andros Townsend kept playing. That would make me really sad. Uh, <laughs> Andros Townsend scored today, so he er, yesterday. What's today? Sunday. Yeah, Aaron or er, er, uh, Andros Townsend did score today, so we do have to be careful about what we say about him. You know, yeah, this is one mean, goal of you know every three years, but he did you've score. Seen his, you've seen his shot maps. They're yeah. a recurring joke in the. Royal Blue Mercy's like <laughs> Yeah, it's uh this this proposed or, or alleged deal that could possibly take place obviously is clouded by the fact that Lookman we're gonna need a replace we're we're gonna need a replacement for Walcott as, as much as uh, because of how fragile he is just how he has been in his career. Um we need someone in, that we can trust to replace him. Uh, and like you say, Seamus has been good um, you know, he's had a couple of bad performances this year, but overall we, I think we all believe that Seamus has some, some years left in the tank and, and, and I'm not sure Juan Basaka should be like, like Chris said, there's no reason we like the settled 11, no reason to throw anything into that competition is good, but maybe not Juan Basaka as a player and that, just- uh, God. Just one more thing on this, as we're talking about, you know, Walcott and Coleman and that that Lookman would be Walcott's, you know, quote unquote replacement. Theo Walcott Mm -hmm. turns 30 in March. Seamus Coleman is currently 
30. He'll turn 31 next October. So, I mean, we're talking about two players and their, you know, the heir apparent for them, as it were, uh, with Lookman and Juan Bissaka. And we're talking about the experienced players basically being the same age. They're six months apart in age. So you you solve a problem that doesn't necessarily, that isn't a, a problem with Coleman, and you create another problem potentially with with uh, Walcott. So to me, it's just punting a, an issue and making it a different one when really there isn't a pressing issue in either situation. Yeah, and I would just say that I do expect Walcott to age worse than Seamus um, because he relies more on his pace, and he's had uh, Coleman's broken leg aside. Walcott's obviously had far more injury issues over the course of his career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, good problems to have. Nothing to be uh and nothing that we're unhappy with if you know if this if these are the things we're discussing and unsure about, that's better than past seasons have been. <laughs> um, but moving on to the final thing we're gonna talk about today, the Chelsea preview, uh really previewing it, our matchup against a team who's been terrific this season under their new coach. Uh, their new coach and has, along with Manchester City and unfortunately Liverpool, zero losses. Um, so three teams in the league with zero losses and we'll be taking on one of them in Chelsea this, uh, this weekend. They, uh, they might be pretty good. Um, but are they a real threat to City? Um, you know, they, they easily beat Palace this weekend to remain undefeated. Are they a real title contender uh, and a threat to the, the stronghold City uh, has had on the league uh, over the past year and a half or so? Adam, we'll start with you. I think that the the short answer based solely on talent is no. Chelsea is not a serious threat to Manchester City as a Premier League winner, and I think Liverpool has a better chance of catching Man City than Chelsea does too. Again, that's based purely on the talent. What I will say is something that you do need to factor into that is that City and Liverpool are going to be balancing Champions League play um, and at times potentially prioritizing that because I think both teams will rightfully feel that they've got a chance to win the whole thing this year because I think that City at times looks like the best team in Europe and Liverpool made the final last year so it certainly would be silly to think that they couldn't do it again while Chelsea will be in the Europa League about which they won't really care what happens if they make a deep run in it great but it's going to be almost exclusively with their second string players because they just don't care about the Europa League. So I think that that's a potential in to get Chelsea closer to City and Liverpool uh, atop the table long term. But I just don't see this team having quite enough talent to be able to to compete with, with City or Liverpool over a 38-game season. Yeah, I completely agree with that assessment. And, you know, it it is, as Adam said, a talent issue because men- – Manchester City aren't having to start uh, David Luiz, Antonio Rudiger, and uh, <clears throat> Ross Barkley. But um, <laughs> the other thing that bears noting is that Maurizio Sarri um, is notorious for not rotating his teams really at all. Um, he did this at Napoli where they, you know, his top 11 players pretty much never took a break and he rarely substitutes early in a match. And 
I think you look at this year and those his settled 11, which somehow, again, includes Ross Barkley, they've played a, just an absolute ton of minutes, and he has – and that's – I suppose that's a fine philosophy, and as we've seen that it's working so far for him. But what ends up happening there is you could probably imagine you start to tail off um, and tail off pretty hard towards the end of the season. And I think, you know, Manchester City, as deep as they are, and Liverpool have made some acquisitions to to become deep as well. I think that will end up biting them in the end. Yeah, and and let's move right into the uh, the player named earlier, a little earlier by you, Chris Ross Barkley. What is up with him? I mean, come on! Like he has <laughs> been playing well now. He's scoring goals. He's doing good things. Uh, as Everton fans, this is very hard for us to deal with. Not because he's playing well on the field, just because of everything he put us through as in as Everton fans and then goes and does this at Chelsea after six months where we just thought that he was just done uh comes into this team playing well is he good now what is the deal with him and anyone want to answer that for me so so the reason that I hate Ross Barkley so much now is because I loved him so much before if you can parse <laughs> that um you know he he has all the tools, right? And it's just, you could always see that at Everton and he's just got a Mason Holgate sized box of rocks in his head. And that was really, you know, he he came out and said a couple weeks ago, like, Oh, I never got coached. It's nice to have a good coach now. Well, yeah, your coach didn't tell you not to go start punching people in a bar. Like that seemed like it needed to be, didn't need to be said. (laughs) Um, it's touches a nerve because I had a Ross Barkley kit, which I have since given away. As did I. Yeah. It's just, it's tough, right? Because it's easy. It's a little bit easier to succeed when you're threading passes to Aiden Hazard than when you're threading them to uh, Aaron Lennon. Hey, you watch what you say about Aaron Lennon. (laughs) Come on. I mean, even Gerard, okay. Gerard Day, I'll switch it to my boy. (laughs) So here's here's what I will say about Barkley because I never really fancied him. So I'll give you the uh, <laughs> maybe the more uh, logical answer. Um, Ross Barkley at Everton when he popped up for England and even at, to an extent still at Chelsea. I, I don't know what he is in terms of a position. Is he a ten? Is he an eight? Uh, should he be? Playing as a false nine, I, I don't know. I still don't know. The, the, the thing is, what he stumbled into here at Chelsea is that it, he's in a three-man midfield alongside Jorginho, who is about as pure a number six as you're going to get, who's going to shield the back four, who's going to keep possession and going to do all of that, you know, underappreciated type of work. And N'Golo Conte, who's the best box-to-box midfielder in the world and is the best ball winner in the world period. So he doesn't have to re, he doesn't have to be anything in that midfield because Jorginho and Conte basically do the work of three players as two. So he can wander around and pick dandelions and think about whatever goes on in his head and wait until he's in the right place or the ball finds him and make the play that we know he's capable of because he has the technical skill and he's big and he's strong and he's quick. Um, and he can do all of those things without being the frustrating void 
that he is so frequently in a game when the ball is not in his feet because he's in a midfield that can compensate for those weaknesses. Yeah, and again, like as as you're saying, which is completely correct, I think the if you want to kind of boil it down to one thing, Everton elected to and mostly they had to the attack needed to run through Ross Barkley. Chelsea, he's, you know, uh, the fifth or sixth player down the line that you need to get involved. And so that, uh, that sets him up for success. He's not under a lot of pressure. He's not having to create chances and also finish them. And so it's, it's a good situation. And I don't, I, I do want to discredit him a little bit just because he put me through a lot of emotional turmoil over the last 18 months or so. And, you know, that's, uh, that's really hard for me. <clears throat> uh, no. no, but like, yeah, he he's in a good situation now, which I think certainly helps. And he's also kind of playing this weird, I don't want to call I think Pep Guardiola calls it something like a, a false eight, which is just a weird way to put it, but it's, it's not a 10 and it's not an eight. It's almost like an 8.5, right? He's not having to, to get on the ball and dictate the play. And he's not having to win the ball back. He just gets, like Adam said, he just gets to kind of stand around and wait till something happens. Which I mean, hey, I wish I had that job. But <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, and and as we've said, I would love to discredit Ross Barkley because I always kind of thought he was a dunce. Um, but he's cl- he's clearly got a lot of talent somewhere in that head full of rocks that he's got, uh, and. I can't take away from him the things that he has done well for Chelsea because the reason that he's done things well for Chelsea is because he's got legitimate talent. But he's getting an opportunity to use that legitimate talent in a way that he would not at most clubs because Chelsea plays in such a way that it specifically covers the flaws in his game. Yeah, I think... The thing with Barkley, and I'm kind of in the same boat as as Chris here in the situation and and all of us, that, you know, we knew Barkley had talent, you know, when when he came up. He was the Everton boy. He was the guy that everybody was talking about. Comes up, scores against Norwich City, that beautiful goal when he first came up. I think that was his first full season. Um, And and was he was, you know, you could see the talent. And I I also had a Barkley jersey as well. and you could see that it was there, and and for so long, he was just he, he just felt like he couldn't get there. And granted, he is playing in a different system now, um, and that certainly helps. But I think that's what frustrates all of us Everton fans the most about Ross Barkley is the knowing that the talent was there, the inability to get there, and then everything that he did to us with the whole transfer saga in the end. Uh, all of that as a whole really frustrates us about Ross Barkley, and that's why it's it's you know it's hard to think I think objectively, um, or yeah. yeah about 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 this. Well, and if you look at the three players that have kind of made their name at Everton recently as as young players, and then have gone on to leave for for more money, and Romelu Lukaku, John Stones, and Ross Barkley, I I, th- I think I easily dislike Ross the most. And yeah. I think it has a lot to do with how he he went about the transfer saga, but I think it has more to do with he felt like he deserved something that I don't think any of us would say that he had earned, whereas especially Lukaku had 
you couldn't have asked for anything more from Rom, and this is not about him, but like Ross was just up and down his entire Everton career, and towards the end, he was just quite bad, and you kind of felt like I don't know, it, I don't want to say entitled, but it just it, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I think entitled well, is a perfectly fair word if if you want my opinion, but that's fine. <laughs> No, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I agree as well. I mean, I think that with the whole Rom thing, I, we all knew he was going to leave. We all knew as soon as we saw that what he had in him, we knew he wasn't mm-hmm. sticking around for long, if, especially if we didn't make Champions League. But with the Barkley thing, you, you're right. I mean, it, he didn't put any effort, or not any effort, but he didn't put in any performances uh, on a consistent basis that really showed us that he deserved that move as much as Lukaku deserved his move uh, to yeah, United. You, you and, basically, and if, it was heartbreaking that he left because you felt like he was bad enough that he might actually end up staying at Everton. Exactly. No, you. you that was my out. hope. Yes. Yeah, you, <laughs> took my, you took my last point right out of the the words right out of my mouth. He he looked like he could just hit that sweet spot where he'd be good enough to carry us to better things and bad enough to never go anywhere else. <laughs> well. We do have to see him on, on Sunday, and, and it'll be interesting to see how we deal with him and and, and the rest of the team. Which... If he if he scores and points to the Chelsea crest, I swear to God, you know he's going to score. Come on, we go over this every week. We did, but we did say that about Rom ahead of United too, and he well, didn't, Rom didn't, though he didn't start. He didn't even barely got a chance yeah. to score. Well, hey, I'm just saying, maybe maybe no, sorry, he'll start Kovacic <laughs> on I, Sunday. I said that about Fellaini, not Lukaku, and neither of them. Oh, I said that about Lukaku, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Surely I said we that all about, thought it about Lukaku, right? <laughs> I, said it, I said it in the the predictions email. I said that I said ah. that I sent to to Adam that Rom was going to score the first goal because why not? Yeah, and I mean half of in in the weekly prediction league that we do amongst our writers, uh, more as a kick for us than anything else. I think two thirds of the people that put in that week uh, had Lukaku score in the opener. So if we didn't if we didn't say it in this space, Lord knows the thought was out there in the universe. Yeah, you're you're gonna get a lot of a lot of Barclays this week, Adam. I think <laughs> it could be. It, it it we'll we'll see how that plays out, but I think it's time to talk about the the superstars on that team. And, and one of them, Eden Hazard, who there's a lot of talk about him being the best player in the league. And, and there's a, an argument out there for, I think, but I want to know what you guys think. Well, how do we feel about Eden Hazard? Is he the best player that is in this league right now? Or, or uh, is that just uh you know, product to, is, is that something you don't buy? I go ahead, Chris, you can lead. Yeah, I, I don't buy it. Um, I've always, and you know, as soon as I say this again, he'll score a hat trick and just be dominant on Sunday. But I've always <laughs> felt kind of like Aiden Hazard is a really good second banana in a team. Like he, if if you have him as a as a secondary or tertiary option, that's that's a really good thing. And I just feel like his his production and his his overall ability speaks more to someone who is. I don't know. He he Aiden Hazard has always felt like a luxury player to me, not somebody that you want to build a truly successful side around. And I know Chelsea have what won two titles with him in the team and and that's certainly worth writing home about, but I I don't get I've never gotten the sense that he's worth that 200 million dollar move to Real Madrid or something like that. 
I I think I've always felt with Hazard that when he is engaged, when he is uh, you know is is really playing at his best, yeah, yeah, he could be that guy. Uh, I'll have to disagree with Chris here. I think he can be you know the the best player in the Premier League when he's at his best. And the issue is now uh, is now and always has been with him that. Good luck getting that from him on a consistent basis because he's, uh, his he, I don't know what goes on in his head. I, I think maybe he's he's also got Mason Holgate, Ross Barkley brains uh, in that he's just not <laughs> not that bright. I, I don't know, uh, but you've always felt like there's something going on with Eden Hazard that he's eyeing a move somewhere or he's unhappy with his manager or whatever. Um, but you get the glimpses of him like we've seen in the first you know ten weeks of the season under Sorry, where you felt like you know <laughs> he's got it going. Where, yeah, you you could buy the the way that he has played. You could buy him as as the best player in the Premier League because you'll look at the other attacking talent at Chelsea, Morata, William, Pedro. You know, guys who are good players, but they're not. You know, they're not competing for the Premier League title. Good, and that's where they're at right now. They've got 27 goals in 11 games. And you look at the rest of that roster and you tell me that that they are good for 27 goals in 11 games if they don't have one of the best players in the Premier League on their roster. There's just no way. Yeah, his and uh, you're you're that's a, a fair assessment. Like his peak is certainly good enough to be in that discussion. Um Aiden Hazard is the Rolls-Royce Gerard De La Feu, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It is. And the other thing is, the best player in the league is on Chelsea. It's just in Golo Conte. Yeah, well, that's fair too. <laughs> it doesn't have, like I, we we center so much of our discussion around attackers, just because they're flashier. But like if if you were asking me who I would want to start a team with right now in the Premier League, I think it would be Conte. I. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I, I've I've always had a bias towards Kevin De Bruyne, but we'll not get into a who's the best player in the league discussion right now. International break um, discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is an international break discussion. Uh, but I, I think I, I have to agree with Adam here where Eden Hazard is. He has the talent to be there. It's just not consistent enough that he can be considered the best player in the league. He's He shows those flashes of brilliance that are just so unbelievable. And the stuff that you see from – top players in the world, never mind in the Premier League. Um, but he doesn't do it consistent enough for us week in, week out, uh, year in, year out to prove that he has been, uh, that he is, you know, the best player in the league. And um, that's why I think all of us um, would stay off of him when making that kind. And if we do have the international break discussion, I'm sure he probably won't be uh, at the top of our list uh, in, in at the top of any of our lists, but uh, real quick before we get to predictions, uh, Chelsea centers, center backs, it, we'll talk about them a little bit and they, they seem gettable and they seem, they seem like they can get beat and, and they're, 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 they're able to be broken down. But, uh, you know, it also involves getting past Jorginho and N'Golo Conte, who we've just talked about is very, very, very good. And, and, and it proposes the question now, what's the game plan? And Adam, we'll start with you on this. How do we figure out the uh, key, the key to the 
to breaking down a Jorginho and Conte and getting through to that defense that we we can see has the possibility of being able to break down. Uh, you know, I think it's it's probably it's a straightforward concept. Uh, doing it is a completely different ballgame. Uh, but you got to hit him wide and hit him quick. Uh, Marcus Alonso is a left winger who happens to play left back. Um, love the guy. Want, basically won me a fantasy league title last year because all he does is put up assist after assist. Um, Ryan but Sessegnon before Ryan Sessegnon. Yeah, except, except that Sessegnon's quick. Alonso's slow as the day is long. Um, <laughs> you know, and as Pelliqueta on the other side, who I, I held for a long time, while he was playing in the middle, that he was really a right back. And now that I've seen him out at right back again, I think maybe he is a center back. I don't know. At, at, at any rate, again, not the quickest guy out there. You can beat these fullbacks with pace. Uh, and you know we've got wingers with pace. We've got Walcott. We've got Lookman. We've got Richarlison. That's the place that you have to target. You want to hit those guys quick. It's probably got to be on the counter because – if you try to play through along the ground to uh, through Conte and Jorginho, you're going to have a bad time. But if you can play quick, turning defense to offense quickly, trying to get past or over the top on those fullbacks to our quick wingers, you've got a shot. Yeah, it, it's. I, I think I think it, the the biggest part. Like we'll continue to mention it is Conte and Jorginho, but I agree that I think once we get past them, there there's chances to be created there. Yeah, uh, and but that, it's not very not very easily done as we've seen already this season. And that ultimately, what what you end up having to do is is go over top them. Um, whether or not yeah. that that's something we can consistently do, whether we've got the guys you know out of the back and in the midfield, particularly probably with Andre Gomez, who can play those balls over the top time will tell and I think again this probably calls for some Dominic Calvert-Lewin right just I would not disagree with you just because of the speed and I also like uh I like Richarlison's chances to I don't know I don't really know that Richarlison is that much faster than Cesar Azpilicueta but I do think that he can bully him physically yeah yeah I I think I I think he gives us a good uh he's in a good position out there to take a player on -on one-on-one and beat him with his his individual skill, which is something we're probably going to need against Chelsea, a team that's going to be hard to break down, and a team that, you know, to score goals against, we're going to need some good individual efforts, and I think um, that that Richarlison plays into that uh, very well, you know, breaking down, getting the ball out there on the left and being able to break down uh, that defense and and put in a good individual effort to score a goal there or, or even get an assist. Uh, but before we, we end the show for today, guys, let's get some predictions. And, Chris, we'll, we'll start with you on this. Oh, if I have to. 3-1 uh, <laughs> Chelsea. Um, I don't I don't know. We've, we played Arsenal away pretty well. We played Manchester United away pretty well. I think Chelsea is a lot better than both of them. And I don't uh, – part of my hesitation here is that – um, you would bet your money that it's going to be Yerry Mina coming in to partner Michael Keane since Kurt Zuma is ineligible um, due to the terms of the loan. And I don't like playing a team that's firing on all cylinders in attack like Chelsea is with two guys who have never really communicated with each other in a live game situation. I think that's a little bit dangerous. And I do... 
we, we've been having a lot of the ball recently against these worst teams, and we're not going to have really any of it on Sunday, and I just think that it's it's going to be too much too soon. Adam? 2-0 uh, Chelsea. Um, I think I think Chris has, has hit on the, the most important points. Um, like I said, you know, I think that the way that you beat this team is has got to be over the top, um, but I, I think that that's going to be too much to ask of Andre Gomes at this stage um, to especially, you know, playing alongside Idrissa Gay, who's, who's not going to be a guy who can play those passes. Um, and ultimately we put in a decent, you know, a, a solid effort. Uh, obviously having a new center back pairing doesn't help. Uh, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's always going to be too much for us to have a real chance. So, and and just to wrap this up, what I will say is that I, you've you've made a fatal mistake of leaving Everton without a goal due to a, a David Luiz error. Hey, you watch <laughs> what you say about David Luiz. That's my boy. I love David Luiz. David Luiz is the most interesting player <laughs> in soccer because a, you never know what position he thinks he's playing. If you he's... tell him he's playing center back, he might think he's still going to play center striker, and two. He's got both amazing ability and the ability to do the dumbest thing you've ever seen in your life all at once. <laughs> He's really he, way overdue for a Dos Equis campaign, right? He he will <laughs> he will score a ridiculous free kick goal and then head a ball into his own net under no pressure. And he could do both in the same game, and you wouldn't even flinch. You'd go, yep, that's David Luis. How can you beat that for entertainment value? But yeah, I digress. No, it's great. And just the other thing is that I, I do think that this is – we're going to get a big win over a top six team this season. I just don't think this one is it. Yeah, I I am actually going to make the fatal mistake. I, I think we're we're not going to score a goal either. I think it's going to be actually 3 nothing in favor of Chelsea. I am worried about Chelsea on that left side, being that we have seen Theo Walcott be very lackadaisical in, in his defensive efforts. Alonzo and Hazard coming forward on that left side are going to cause problems for the left side of, or for the the right side of that uh, Everton defense, uh, and I think that's going to be an issue. And and I kind of see things falling apart much like they have in the other two games where we give up a goal, put in a good defensive effort, give up a goal, and then things kind of all of a sudden uh, just start going bad and and ends up giving a couple more, couple more goals. Uh, three nothing in favor of Chelsea for me this weekend, but we'll see how it plays out. They, uh, I believe it's Sunday that Everton will be taking them on. We'll all be watching, uh, and uh, it'll, it'll be interesting. Um, it'll certainly be interesting to see how things play out. But guys, thanks for sharing in the podcast with me and coming on to talk a little bit about Everton and how things went this past week and what to look forward to. To listeners out there, keep following us on Twitter uh, and, and just keep listening. We appreciate it, and we'll talk to you guys next week.